0: We come today, for those who weren't here last week, to the second in three expositions of the Psalms. While Keith is away, we are going to look at these three Psalms and see what God has for us from that particular part of his word. The book of Psalms is a book of spiritual formation. For the last 2,500 years, God has used the book of Psalms to teach, to guide, to encourage, to warn, to comfort and to challenge his people. So we're not just looking at a historical document, we're looking at something that is the living and abiding word of God. The fact that God has Use the book of the psalms as a book of spiritual formation for his people over these many centuries. This is true both corporately and individually. The psalms have always had a very important place in the gathering of God's people as we come together for corporate worship. But the psalms have also been treasured by believers individually as we seek to grow in faith as we seek to wrestle with the issues of our lives. If you had a look at my Bible, you would find that in the book of the Psalms, over many years I have put a little date when I read that particular psalm, and underneath the date I put a little notation of how God spoke to me through that particular psalm. So as I read through the psalms, I'm reminded of how God has dealt with me in his grace and in his perseverance. Most of the Psalms, or about half the Psalms, were written by King David in the various circumstances of his 70-year-long life. David wrote some Psalms in times of great difficulty when he was crying out to God about some issue in his life. David wrote other Psalms in times of great joy when he'd experienced God's deliverance and his answer to his prayers. In these Psalms, his heart is overflowing with thanksgiving. Having said that, it's important to affirm that the Psalms are not a personal journal of David's life. They are supremely about God, they're about God's goodness. They're about God's faithfulness. They're about God's wisdom, about his love, about his grace. On the other hand, the Psalms are not a theological treatise. They're about God, yes, but not in a theoretical kind of way. The Psalms are about how David experienced God in his life, how he encountered God in the circumstances of his own life. That is how and why God has used the Psalms in the spiritual formation of his people over the centuries. But before we look at Psalm 13, I want us to pray together that God would not only give us an awareness of what God has been doing through the centuries, but he would speak to us through this psalm this morning. Father, we thank you for the wonderful treasury of the Psalms. So many have written by David. Father, we pray that as we look at this particular psalm, you will help us to connect with who you are. Help us to connect with what you want to do in our lives this morning. And Father, those who come this morning wrestling with issues, struggling perhaps in different ways, we pray that you will speak to us, that you will comfort us, you will guide us, you will give us your strength and grace and wisdom. In Jesus' name. Amen. As we read through the Psalms, we will be aware that there are very different, distinctly different kinds of Psalms. Some of the Psalms are penitential Psalms. The Psalmist is aware of his own wrongdoing and sin, and he cries out to God for his mercy and forgiveness. Other psalms are psalms of historical reflection, where the psalmist traces God's dealing with his people through the centuries, very often going back to his deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt. Some psalms are reflections of God's wisdom and his power, shown in his creation, shown as well in his written law and commandments. Other psalms focus on a particular incident in the life of David, and we find many of these incidents are also recorded in the books of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. Psalm 13 falls into yet another category. It is a psalm of questioning and lamentation. I won't ask you to put up your hands, but just reflect for a moment. Have you ever done any questioning? Uh, any lamentation about something that's happening in your life, if that is the case, you're at the right place this morning. Now, you have to realize that lamentation is very different from grumbling and complaining. Grumbling and complaining is based on self-pity. The focus is on me and my circumstances and why what is happening to me is so unfair. Lamentation may be dealing with the same issues, but its focus is on God, on God's unchanging power and love. Lamentation is rooted in a humility before God's sovereign power and his providential care. Grumbling and complaining has little interest in what God might be doing in the situation. Lamentation is very open to what God is doing in our situation. Dr. Helen Rosevere was a doctor in what used to be called the Belgium Congo between 60 and 70 years ago. In the course of her work, she was captured by Congolese rebels. She was horrendously mistreated and raped. And when she was eventually set free and got back to England, she was interviewed by the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation. A slightly unsympathetic interviewer put this question to her. He said, Dr. Rosevere, why did God allow that to happen to you? Helen Rosevere thought for a moment, and then she replied. She said, I don't know why God allowed this to happen to me. But when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask him. (laughs) What a beautiful example of the humility of lamentation. In this psalm of lamentation, we have three clearly distinct parts. First, we have the question that David asked. Second, we have the petition that David made. And third, we have the affirmation that David proclaimed. A question comes in verses 1 and 2. A petition comes in verses 3 and 4. And the affirmation comes in verses 5 and 6. The question that David asked, the petition that David made, and the affirmation that David proclaimed. This question, petition, and affirmation all come out of some horrendous event that had overtaken David's life. We do not know what that calamity was. There were many... Tragic events in the life of King David. But we have no clue as to which one of those is represented in this psalm. First of all, the question that David asked. He asked the question, how long? This is in fact repeated four times in the first two verses. How long must I have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? How long? How long? What are the how long questions in your life? How long will I have to endure this health crisis? How long before I meet the man who will become my husband? How long before I'll meet the woman who will become my wife? How long before I get a job? When we ask how long questions, we don't usually expect God to answer us in terms of weeks and months. The how long question is much more an expression of the difficulty that we find the uncertainty in handling unfulfilled longings or stress in our life. There is no record of God answering David's how long question in terms of months or weeks but God did answer what was behind his how long question. As we look at David's how long question, we discover what was behind this question. In verse one, he asks, will you forget me forever? Behind David's how long question was a fear that God had forgotten him. David loved God's word. He affirms this so clearly in Psalm 119. David almost certainly would have had access to the first five books of the Bible and other books of the Bible. If he had, he would have read Joshua chapter 1 verse 5, which is an answer to his question. Has God forgotten me? God says to Joshua, I will never leave you or forsake you that promise has been claimed by believers time and time again over the centuries. But there's a second clue as well to David's how long question. In the first one he says, how long will you hide your face from me? David thought that God was deliberately hiding from him. But scripture is very clear. It tells us that God never hides from us. We might hide from God, but God never hides himself from us. Sometimes we feel that God is close to us, perhaps in an inspiring service, or maybe when some dear friend is praying with us. But other times we may not have those feelings of God's presence. But when we come to those times, we have to remember this promise in Joshua 1, verse 5, I will never leave you or forsake you. And when the feelings are absent, it doesn't mean that God is absent. It just means that perhaps he's calling us to depend more on his promise and less on our feelings. To live by faith, not to depend on our changeable feelings. So that is the petition that David made. Then we come to the David's petition, that was the the question he asked. We come next to the petition that David made. David's petition is brief and succinct. Light up my eyes. Verse 3, David prays, Consider and answer me, O Lord. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. And as I read this passage, I asked myself, What did David mean by this petition, Light up my eyes? There are many references in the Psalms to our need of God's light. Psalm 36 verse 9 reads, With thee is the fountain of life, and in thy light do we see light. Or we could look at Psalm 43 verse 3, Send out thy light, and thy truth let them lead me. In the physical world, we can see all that is around us, because it is illuminated by the light of the sun. At night, unless we have an artificial light, we can see nothing. The human eye is one of the greatest marvels of optical design and microengineering in the whole of God's creation. And yet, without light coming from outside it, our eyes can see nothing. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is saying that just as in the physical world, without the light of the sun, we can see nothing and are in darkness. So in the spiritual world, without the light of Jesus, we can see nothing and are in spiritual darkness. How does Jesus bring God's light to us? Jesus brings to us the light of who God is. Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. The writer of the book of Hebrews said, Jesus reflects the glory of God and bears the very stamp of his nature. The apostle Paul, writing to the Christians in Corinth, stated, It is God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus brings to us the light of who God is. Without that light, we are in spiritual darkness. Jesus also brings to us the light of God's salvation, God's saving action to deliver us from the power of sin and death. The old man Simeon in the temple when. Jesus, as an infant, was brought in by Mary and Joseph. When he saw the couple and the baby, he took the child up in his arms and lifted up his heart with praise to God. These are his words. My eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to thy people Israel. Just dwell for two moments on that reference to salvation and light, which Simeon uttered prophetically then, inspired by the Holy Spirit. The light of God's salvation, which he recognized in Jesus. Jesus saves us from the sin of our rebellion against God. A consequence of our rebellion against God is separation from God. And with that separation and that rebellion comes guilt, shame, helplessness to withstand the onslaughts of the world, the flesh, and the devil. The outcome is spiritual death and physical death. And so the Apostle Paul cried out in the seventh chapter of the book of Romans, I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I do. Wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death? Then he goes on with this great declaration, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ, who brings about that deliverance from sin and death. The light of God's salvation shines supremely in the cross, for it is there that Jesus carried the penalty for our sin, there that he defeated Satan and even death itself. So Jesus brings us the light of who God is. Jesus brings us the light of God's salvation, but he also brings us the light of God's abiding presence by the gift of his Holy Spirit. He brings into our life his wisdom, his comfort, his peace, his strength, the fruit of his indwelling spirit as we seek to live for him day by day. I think every one of us, in some way or other, have cried out David's prayer, Light up my eyes. Lord, I need your light to dispel the darkness that seems to be closing in around me. You may be praying for the light to know who God is. You may be praying for the light of God's saving power in your life. We may be praying for God's light of wisdom and comfort and strength. Whichever it is, what we do know is that Jesus is the light of the world. In him and through him, we have God's light. We do not need to walk in darkness. So we've seen the question that David asked in this psalm. We've seen the petition that David made, which brings us finally to the affirmation that David proclaimed. David asked his question, he made his position. And then, without any break or hesitation, he affirmed his trust in God's steadfast love, his joy in God's salvation, his praise of God's grace. Here is his affirmation in the final two verses of this psalm. I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with him. I think the significance in this affirmation is that it is proclaimed by David before God had answered his question. It's affirmed by David before God had responded to his petition. This is spiritual maturity. David was affirming his trust and joy and praise in God, not after the crisis was all over, but in the middle of the crisis. That is spiritual maturity. Very much like David, we have the writer Habakkuk, the prophet, who lived through the invasion of Jerusalem by the Assyrians in 587 BC. As he prophesied the terrible destruction of that city God's judgment on the people and the sin of that city. Like David, he made a great and joyful affirmation. Here are his words. Though the fig tree do not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vine, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit, the flock be cut off from the fold, there be no herd in the stalls, yet... I will rejoice in the Lord. I will join the God of my salvation. God is my strength. He makes my feet like hinds feet. He makes me tread on the high places. And in this very brief affirmation, David is saying three things. He says, I have trusted in your steadfast love. As we pour out our hearts to God in prayer, perhaps in lamentation, He gives us a deep inner assurance that we can trust him because he is good, because all power belongs to him in heaven and on earth, and because he loves us. Secondly, David is saying, My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. The Apostle Paul in Romans 8, 32 said something very similar. He declared, He who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also with him freely give us all things? That is an amazing statement. It says that because God has given us the Lord Jesus Christ, even to the point of death, we then can trust him for everything. As we rejoice in what God has already done for us in Christ, our confidence grows that he will continue to provide for us, no matter how great our present crisis may be. And finally, David says, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. David wrote this psalm nearly 3,000 years ago, but God's purpose has not changed. He has given us the gift of music and song, so that as the apostle Peter wrote, we may declare the wonderful deeds of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Thanks be to God. Let us be quiet for a moment as we reflect on what God has given to us through his word. Light of the minds that know thee, joy of the hearts that love thee, strength of the wills that serve thee, help us so to know thee that we may truly love thee, so to love thee that we may freely serve thee, whom to serve is perfect freedom, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.